This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Laura Gannon, an Associate Director at Meridian Urban in Brisbane. Laura and I first met on the National Young Planners Group for the Planning Institute of Australia, where we were both young representatives for our state on a national committee. Laura has almost 20 years of experience in strategic land use planning, bushfire risk and community resilience across both the public and private sectors. She specialises in management consulting approaches to the integration of natural hazard risk management into land use planning policy and strategy, with a particular emphasis on bushfire risk and resilience, floodplain risk management and climate adaptation. Laura was also recently awarded the Outstanding Women in Planning Award for 2022 by the Queensland Division of the Planning Institute of Australia. Welcome, Laura. It's great to see your face again. It's been far too long. It has been. Thank you so much, uh, Peter and Jess, for having me. Laura, we're very excited. Meridian's a great name for company too, I've got to say. <laughs> it is, now, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's very cool. Planning for bushfires. Is this about most of your work these days? And how did you transition from traditional planning into bushfire planning? Um, yeah, look, it is, it is, it does take up the vast majority of my work. Um, I also do a lot of general resilience work, which um, resilience planning work, which um, inherently involves natural hazards, but it's probably more about communities and that community um, driven focus, the socioeconomic environmental, how the community sees natural hazards and and contemplates its its own resilience. So that's a big part of what um, um, what my work currently involves as well. But um, I suppose in terms of um, transitioning from from a traditional planning role, um, I think um, anyone who who's known me in my career has known me known me to be a really passionate planner. I am really passionate about about planning um, generally, but I suppose. Um, in terms of my interest specifically in bushfire. Um, honestly, the 2009 uh, Victorian bushfires were, um, I guess, a, a key turning point for me. Um, I am originally from Victoria. Um, and so bushfires have always sort of been part of, um, you know, I guess just my awareness of, of living in Australia and what happened in that event really, um, I suppose, raised some questions for me in terms of the built environment. Um, and then, of course, the Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission and the recommendations uh, that came from that really changed the face of, of planning for bushfire hazard in Australia moving forward. And um, I was fortunate enough to study at the former Australian Emergency Management Institute in the Macedon Ranges. Um, uh, back in, I think, 2011, I undertook their risk-based land use planning course. And it just really, it, I suppose that was the point where it really dawned on me um, that there was a contribution I could make in this space. Um, and so I, yeah, undertook quite a, quite a journey of study after that. Um, and uh, yeah, have um, been really focused on this space um, for the past decade or so. Um, so that's been my journey today. So Laura, bushfire planning has sort of morphed into becoming a standalone role. Is that because the complexity has increased over the past 20 years or so? I think what we've seen over the past 20 years has been a, what we've seen is a drastic increase in our awareness, our understanding of bushfire as a hazard. Um, and uh, development of fire science in particular. Um, so there's been, there has been considerable change in this space. And yes, that has probably introduced um, a continual evolution of complexity because the more that we know about this space, the more there is to investigate what those land use planning responses um, should look like um, and hence why we've also seen a lot of change from a policy perspective um, over recent years and probably quite particularly um, since 
the um, Ash Wednesday fires in 1983. You know, it was um, that sort of set the pace for the first um, building um, provision that came out in 1991, um, the first version of AS3959. Um, and then with each, you know, large fire event that's occurred in Australia, there's been a quantum of research conducted um, to understand human behaviour, to understand the um, interrelationship between fire and the built environment, uh, how buildings are lost, um, but also how fires transition across the landscape and what we're seeing in different um, fire weather conditions as well. So there's been a lot of learnings, I suppose, that have um, informed th this space over recent years and, and hence why it's sort of becoming a, um, its own kind of area as well. Laura, for our listeners outside of Australia, um, the southeast of Australia is one of the most fire-prone areas in the world. Yes. I think I think France, parts of France, are as well. But uh, you know, there's there's the massive bushfires we have, and I know in in the states, you know, they have the same things in mm. California and things. But that the massive bushfires seem to come about every thirty years. Um, in, in terms of our understanding, I mean, people have always understood the risks of bushfire, but perhaps now we've got much better technology and uh, even aerial photography um, mm. and the, the tools we've got now, people didn't have 100 years ago. I mean, I think the first recorded bushfire in Victoria was in the 1850s, uh, but at, we're so much better equipped now to consider these issues fair, fair comment yeah i would say um we are living in a society now with with a heightened level of awareness and we have tools at our disposal that help us understand um you know what the seasonal dynamics are looking like before the fire season actually starts so we can kind of understand the picture of what might lie ahead um, for those those few months of the year, um, each year. Um, and there's a lot of climate models and fire weather models that, that, um, that go into deriving that picture. But importantly, we also have um, improved warning systems, um, emergency management warning systems, um, and policies around um, what people are needing to do in different conditions. Uh, and so I think when we pull all of these things together, we can see how far we've come uh, over the decades to where we are now. Uh, are there improvements still required? Yes, there absolutely are, but uh, there has been a, a a dynamic shift and I suppose you know the level of communication that we have available to us at the moment you know particularly social media are really great for sharing information um, also for sharing misinformation uh, which we also need to be aware of as citizens where we're drawing our information from and making sure they're credible sources but it is a really powerful it's not tool. the Russians is it uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. But uh, I think what we do see in events is um, people exaggerate things, um, and there has been a tendency for some sensationalist things, I suppose, to be posted on social media that aren't necessarily quite accurate. So uh, it's it's, and it's really hard for people to have an awareness of those things. But you know, it definitely does happen during events which is difficult for people then to to understand what they what they what action they should be taking we thank victorian planning reports our very first supporter if you want the a to z of planning decisions in victoria and excellent editorials please get yourself a subscription to the vprs details on our website this podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now, Laura, the idea of disaster planning, so bushfires, floods, cyclones, earthquakes, all of those things, they're all very different. But from a disaster planning perspective, are there common threads? 
Uh, yes and no. Um, so to an extent, uh, particularly when we're thinking about, um, you know, planning for resilience, there's a lot of environmental, you know, natural process factors. Uh, there's considerations from a socioeconomic perspective. Um, those are all kind of hazard agnostic. Um, they just really stand our communities in good stead when an event occurs. Uh, when we're planning specifically for different hazards, there are of course differences. Um, so there could be structural mitigation, there could be land management processes, um, there could be building uh, approaches, uh, you know, uh, bolstering our, our infrastructure responses um, and our infrastructure networks. So there could be a range of different things in that perspective that really relate to um, different types of hazard exposures. Um, but I'd say it's probably 50-50. Um, there are certainly some common threads, but there's also some hazard specific uh, considerations that, that do need to be given um, when we are planning for natural hazards. Uh, with, with bushfires, Laura, I mean, the last two seasons in Victoria, uh, there's been no bushfires. We, we've had not a lot of hot weather um, and lots of rain. So people tend to forget the lessons from the past. Do, do you think that's a reasonable thing? I mean, you know, we all remember how awful it was um, when those big, big bushfires went through 83 and 2009, but people tend to over time forget. Would you think that's right? I think that, um, yeah, there, there can be an element of complacency that filters in after a while. Uh, and it depends, you know, we talk about recovery and we think that it might be only a couple of years and, and then, you know, we're recovered. Uh, that's not really quite the case with communities. Some people will never recover from, from um, disaster trauma. Um, some people will um, experience significant economic loss to the point where they might be in a situation of, of homelessness. Uh, so these are all really key things for us to be uh, thinking about when we're planning for natural hazards and for disaster resilience and for climate impacts. Um, and so complacency is certainly an issue. And I think uh, what we're, when we look in, into planning for resilience, so really taking that strengths-based approach, it enables us to understand how that uh, comes to fruition, I suppose. And it's really about um, that after a period of time, whilst we remember the heartache and the hurt and the pain and the trauma, the day-to-day -day challenges that we face, you know, just keeping a roof over our head and food on the table and, you know, the, the daily life challenges, um, you know, they, they come to the fore. So, um, so that's how complacency over time tends to occur. It is a really key thing that we need to uh, keep in mind, though, particularly as planners, um, you know, we've had a really... Um, traumatic flood season this season and we, we we knew from the climate models that that was that was going to likely be the case um, just the same as as we we sort of knew heading into the black summer season um, what potentially lay ahead um, and it, it's just really important for us to keep planning for these events over time and not letting that complacency filter in through the planning process. We do have to be planning across multiple hazards always, irrespective of what the climate or the seasons are doing. Well, that's an interesting thing because, you know, after a bushfire goes through a community, the government a lot of the times says, you know, we're right behind rebuilding the community and, uh, and, a lot of places are rebuilt that are tragically really badly set up for bushfires, but there's such a public push and the politicians want to support the local community. So they allow the community to get back on its feet, so-called, and rebuild in exactly the same places that 
are probably totally inappropriate. It's a bit harsh, but sometimes you know, there, there might be a better, better long-term solution. Uh, you, your thoughts? I think what we're seeing is a transition to those conversations. I think the, the topic of rebuilding is a really complex one. It's a deeply personal one. It's a divisive and contentious one as well. And it changes depending on the context or the community. Um, and the best time to be thinking about rebuilding is before something actually happens. Um, what would our plan yeah, but, but, but be? But that's, you know, we're, we're always sort of, Re, you know in planning a lot of the times it's reactive rather than you know it, it it's reactive to a disaster and i think maybe that in an ideal world that was the way it would happen but that's not the way it happens yeah uh that's the way it has been happening in the past uh is that the way it will continue i'm not so sure um i think we're moving into a, a time in our society where those conversations are starting to um, more readily occur. Uh, I think there's a more there's a, a, a growing willingness to have the conversation. And that seems to be, I mean, given at the moment, we've just come out of um, some of the, the worst floods that Queensland have seen in a long time. Obviously, those conversations are extremely pertinent to that community at the moment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's a there's a range of things. It's not limited to rebuilding. Um, there's, um, you know, retrofitting homes um, is a really great option, particularly on floodplains where um, it depends on risk, of course, uh, but there might be some options where raising uh, dwellings could be uh, a viable opportunity, uh, depending on the the depth and velocity characteristics. Certainly there's, there's some places in, on the floodplain that are um, quite high risk um, um, where, you know, perhaps a, a conversation around, um, around buyback and, and, and other opportunities might be, might be quite viable. Now, Laura, all of our states are in a way very similar, but also very different, um, particularly when you start talking about disaster planning. Um, what, are, what about national approaches to disaster planning and bushfire regulation? Um, I assume there probably can't, there, there aren't any at the moment. Is this something that would be beneficial or something that is being investigated currently? I know that there's a lot of talk in this space. Um, and I think one of the challenges that we would need to overcome uh, in order to achieve this is just how different our planning systems are across Australia. Uh, so in some locations, um, a lot of assessment and regulation is carried out on a statewide basis. You know, for example, if we look at New South Wales, they have planning for bushfire protection, which is a statutory guideline. Um, and that stewards the um, bushfire planning process across New South Wales. In Queensland, for example, um, the local planning instruments are uh, the key vehicle for that, uh, of course, supported by the state planning policy and, uh, and guidance material. Uh, but it is a very different um, system to operate within. Uh, and we do see that right across Australia. Uh, Western Australia operates under a state planning policy. Tasmania and, and South Australia have moved to, um, a, a, I guess, a similar approach to Victoria um, around standard controls. So that's probably something that I don't think it's... Um, unable to be overcome but I think it's something that the process a process that looked at that would have to consider the differences and similarities in the planning systems across across the country so uh, more, in order to achieve that so it's sort of more about having um, I guess like a base framework that everyone um, is guided by and then having individual states uh, work through implementation differently because obviously there's going to be um, nuances between states in terms of implementation, it sounds like, you know, the best way forward in that space. 
That's right. And there's there, there are some really great resources currently available that, um, that do go part of this way. So in 2016, the Planning Institute of Australia released the um, national guidelines for um, um, land use planning for disaster resilient communities. And that was followed up in 2020 by the release of the um, Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience um, National Handbook on um, planning for disaster resilient communities. So those uh, guidelines provide a level of um, framework uh, at a national scale. Uh, there is potential for uh, further detail to be to be borne out, perhaps by um, a more hazard specific approach. You know, we know that there's there's um, floodplain uh, development guidelines that are kind of a national standard. So a, a national planning standard uh, could be could be an opportunity. Yeah, I, you know, Jess, I, I disagree. I mean, we, we we live in a federal federalism. That's the way we're. Our government is set up and each state runs its fire services and each state knows its particular issues. So do we need, really need another level of bureaucracy on this stuff? I mean... I don't think we're talking about bureaucracy, though. It's more about just having consistency in terms of um, a base level of knowledge and approach. And then the states can obviously yeah. do with that what they want in terms of implementation. Yeah, but... Because we don't we, want to... Know, we, we've got... You know, I think there's a lot of knowledge sharing between the different agencies, but and I think there's it's not about capable... reinventing the wheel every time. I guess. Well, well, I think I think they're very, I think they're very capable, and they're talking to each other. And I just think I that they so. can do it themselves. Sorry, let's sorry, listeners. <laughs> uh, Jess and I are arguing, which is it never happens. So, Laura, now it might it's, it might surprise uh, our listeners that the frequency of cyclones has actually diminished in Australia over the past several decades. Is there a disconnect between what people believe about the client and what is climate and what's actually happening? Um, Peter, can I just ask uh, your source of data on the frequency of cyclones? Yeah, it's a small organisation called the CSIRO. And which particular document? Oh, well, look, I, look you'll have to trust me on that. I'm not used to citing and we <laughs> listeners we did send some things out before the interview we do do a bit of prep work and I and uh anyway I sent you the emails so the the level it's of not very often that I hear Pete lost for words no 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 Jess it's it's <laughs> no no because I you know the, the issue of cyclones um People, what people think about climate catastrophes and what actually happens, uh, you know, are two different things because there are certain, we all live in the moment. So we all experience disasters and we think they're the worst ever. Just, just as the flooding that's happened in the east coast of Australia, that's, that's not, that's not happened, you know, that has happened before in, in a worst case, but because we live through things, we think it's the worst. So Back to the question, Jess, the cyclone, the frequency, please allow this. If the, the frequency of cyclones has diminished over recent decades, and that would surprise a lot of people, what are your thoughts, Laura? Um, I think when we look at the climate change models into the future, uh, people do tend to think that um, climate change does mean uh, more in you know, more frequent cyclone activity. Uh, the models aren't currently suggesting that. So they're not suggesting a higher number, but they are suggesting an increased intensity um, when they do cross the coast of Australia. So, um, so that is, that is um, one nuance. And I suppose when we look at uh, climate models, um, and I, I speak to this as an end user of models, I am not a climate scientist, nor am I a modeler. So um, uh, my understanding of the situation and looking at the models across different parts of Australia and different regions within different states is the impacts are different. Um, it's not consistent. Uh, when we look at what the potential implications of natural hazards are moving 
forward. Um, it does vary and those and there's different scenarios that need to be considered. There needs to be um, a variety of, of potential futures that we consider as part of planning um, into the future for natural hazards and for disasters. Um, so, you know, the, the, the future is not fixed as well. So we know that we're living in the, in the critical decade and, and every uh, action we take at the moment to, uh, to um, mitigate climate, um, global warming um, and reduce our carbon emissions um, will have a benefit ultimately in terms of um, those climate futures um, and the implications of, of potential natural hazards. Uh, Laura, I think everyone will agree with what you've just said, and I'll, I'll put to you, climate change has always occurred. I think we have had climate fluctuations over the over um, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, yes. Um, but what I would also say is that the um, IPCC reports are very clearly articulate that the rate of change we are currently experiencing is uh, very much tied to human activity and it is changing at a much greater pace than it has uh, from what we understand from records drawn by, you know, whether it's carbon dating or, or other activities that, um, that climate scientists use to, you know, use to, to understand um, his, the history of the climate um, across the planet. Now, Laura, the difference between weather and climate, can we talk about the difference? Yes. Um, again, I'm not a climate scientist, so I will speak at a very high level, but um, there are a range of um, climate factors, um, you know, um, La Nina and El Nino, um, the dipoles, etc., cetera, um, oscillation, those sorts of things that dictate um, what is going on around the around the, the globe and you know uh, Jess and Peter this could be a fabulous um, episode to, to go into um, with a with a climate scientist into the future but um, season on season we can see uh, the implications of um, changes uh, to global climate uh, indicators weather on the other hand is our localized um, atmospheric conditions. Uh, so we can also model weather um, and what that's looking like uh, into the very kind of short-term future. Um, and uh, these both weather and climate models can, uh, can forecast for us what we're, we're likely to, to be looking at. And I, I guess, um, you know, meteorologists do often cop a bit of flack in terms of um, uh, weather forecasts that don't necessarily come to fruition, but um, I always say better to be prepared than than to to be caught off guard. My um, my daughter was born last year. We named her Nina, and uh, it's amazing how many people think that I named her after the weather. <laughs> <laughs> now, Laura, just getting back to the bushfires. How have changes to building standards evolved over recent years? And what does that mean for people renovating homes and land management and so forth? Um, well, right across Australia, uh, we have AS3959 in place, which is the Australian standard for um, uh, building in, in bushfire prone areas. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the first iteration of that uh, was released in 1991. And that was off of extensive research conducted after the Ash Wednesday fires of 19, uh, uh, 1983. Uh, what we have seen since then is uh, tremendous research and investment in this space, which has meant that that uh, Australian standard has continued to, to be updated over time. Um, and so, yes, they have evolved. And I think the most recent uh, iteration came out in 2018. Um, what it means for people, uh, either building or, or renovating, uh, is yes, there is a there is a cost implication. But uh, if, as citizens, we're going to live in a in risk based environments, and we we all do, we're all exposed to some level of risk. And part of um, 
part of our responsibility is, is uh, our own resilience and uh, how we build is a really key part of that. So, um, so the cost implications of it are factored into the uh, uh, design, I suppose you could say, or the, the calibration of the, um, of the building standards. But ultimately, it's, it's really looking at that test of what, the, what sort of materials and what kind of construction is required, um, depending on your exposure to radiant heat or ember attack or, or even flame contact. So there's different types of um, uh, bushfire behavior and bushfire attack mechanisms that need to be considered by, uh, by those building standards. Laura, you know, just going back to your modelling, you know, the IPCC on climate change, models are only good, uh, only as good as the inputs that go into them. And there's been some criticism of the IPCC modelling in the past that none of it's modelled the climate uh, that well. And the latest IPCC has toned down the projected increase in temperatures. So it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing fact fact isn't it that modeling is you know modeling the climate is an incredibly complex issue and the modeling tools presumably are getting better my understanding is correct is that that is correct they are getting better but uh peter i'd suggest that's probably a question for a climate scientist rather than myself fair comment <laughs> moving moving back to bushfires um and I, I know, Laura, I've, I built a uh, house in the bush and we, we had to, the only reason we needed to get a planning permit was because of uh, the bushfire management overlay. Mm -hmm. And we had to change the design of the house and it, it cost a bit more, but you think you're confident those sort of measures will help long-term? Um, I think there's a range of mitigation factors we need to be, looking at and I suppose that at the very beginning that starts with a person's level of um, risk appetite um, versus what sort of lifestyle uh, opportunities they're seeking so that and that's a deeply personal decision um, but I think when we're looking at um, uh, particularly at, at residential dwellings, um, there's a range of things. It's, it's, it's not only about the building standards, it's about, um, you know, what is our plan as a household, uh, particularly under different circumstances. So uh, what are our triggers for, you know, perhaps leaving or, um, you know, any particular action we, we, we need to take? What are the decision-making points? When do we need to make those decisions? Particularly if it's about evacuating because we need to make sure that um, we're not leaving it to the last minute um, and, and leaving ourselves enough time to, to make those decisions and to, uh, and to safely evacuate. It's also about, you know, annual property maintenance, um, um, you know, uh, so whether that's looking after the vegetation on the property or just maintaining the dwelling itself, um, but also contributing to conversations with neighbours, um, you know, what are their plans, uh, as well as the broader community. Uh, so in doing all of these things, um, we build not only our own resilience, but those of our, our household and our broader community by really thinking about the what ifs and having a plan in place and knowing uh, the plans of others as well that we that we care about because often our decisions will end up being driven by others in our household. So if we if we aren't home uh, and we've or you know maybe we're at work and we have children at school or at childcare, those are the things that are going to drive our decision making um, to get to, to our loved ones. Um, so having a plan in place and kind of being aware of what the what the risk dynamics might look like. Um, ahead of time is a really important um, yeah. opportunity for us. Laura, where, where, where my place is in the bush, there's an informal a phone network so that certain people will contact other people. Oh, fabulous, like uh, a phone tree. Yeah, it is a phone tree essentially. And so that certain people look after certain people so that there's this regular contact. And uh, I was in the, you know, I had a uh, place in the country during Black Saturday and I remember the day very, very well. 
you know, it was extremely hot. We'd been in a drought for 10 years. We had the millennial drought. The winds were atrocious. I don't think anything could have stopped that fire. Um, You know, uh, realistic uh, approaches to escape, I think, as you say, uh, essential. And it's also that local community. Um, You might not get on with your neighbour, but when there's a disaster, and I do get on with my neighbours, I've got to say, Jess, but... Um, it's essential to have that local community feeling. Yep, Laura? Absolutely, yes. Um, Depending on the scale of an event that that occurs, our neighbours will be first responders. We will be first responders um, um, because they're the ones that are in proximity or we're the ones that are in proximity. Um, And so... Um, the Australian spirit has always been one of uh, lending a hand when it's needed. And I think uh, it's, it, that's really a foundation piece of resilience and, and being connected with people um, is a really uh, key part of that. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. Now, Laura, just going back to the 2009 fires again, and correct me if this fact is not right, but I think it was a dodgy power pole that was deemed to be one of the contributing factors to those fires. Is that right? Uh, there was there was litigation. There were a number of fires that day. So that yeah. was, I believe, one of those. One of, them. One of those. And, yeah. and there was also arson too. Let's not yeah. forget that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there was a lot of things. Um, are the owner operators of power infrastructure now being required to regularly regularly upgrade and maintain those sorts of assets? Uh, there has been a, a, a particular shift in this space since 2009 uh, and there has been a lot of um, work and, and perhaps stakeholder engagement, of course, it's, that's also occurred. And there have been changes. Um, energy providers have uh, sought to underground infrastructure in, in high-risk environments. Uh, there's also been upgrades to a lot of um, infrastructure assets, um, and uh, strengthening of networks. Uh, One of the other uh, mitigation measures that has been explored is actually um, de-energizing the network uh, on higher fire danger days. Um, And- Well, well, they do that in California a lot now, Laura, yet they just cut the power. That's right. Um, and whilst that manages a, I guess an, it's an ignition management approach, um, there's also some cascading uh, risk issues that we need to be thinking about in those sorts of situations around, um, you know, people's ability to get warnings, um, what it means for, you know, telecommunications networks if, um, if, they, if they don't have power and they and perhaps they... Um, um, perhaps the power's off for longer than the backup um, energy source can, uh, can uh, sustain those towers. Um, so there's a range of other issues that uh, are also being contemplated in that space. So it's not, it's not an easy space. Um, we all rely on energy. So um, um, it is one of our key essential um, uh, infrastructure networks. Uh, and and uh, when we lose it, um, uh, yeah, there's just some other cascading things that we need to um, be aware of. Now, now, Laura, in the research for this, we're just not very diligent. Uh, we've looked up that there's, uh, since European settlement in Australia, which I think was 1788, uh, there's a total of about 850 people have died in bushfires. Um, about 160,000 Australians die each year. Um, accidental falls killed about 3,300 people in 2019 alone. In, 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 so I, I suppose we need to, I know there's a lot more about bushfires than just deaths, but 850 people over, what, 230 years, it sort of tends to take the sting out of it a bit. Uh but I wanted to say something also about the random chance of death in, in Earth since 
1920, there's been about a 0.01% chance of death from climate, extreme climate. But now the same, it's about 0.0025% chance. So there's been about a 100% reduction in the chance of dying from extreme weather events. Your thoughts about, I mean, a lot of people are worried about extreme climate fatalities, but the numbers suggest that it's just diminished, you know, incredibly in the last hundred years. Um, well, I, I guess as we spoke to earlier, there have been a lot of advancements um, in terms of warning networks and um, communication and preparedness and awareness that have contributed and continue to contribute because we invest a lot in in Australia and globally in uh, in those um, networks and advancements. Um, what we also tend to see are different scales of events. Um, and there have been very large scale global events. I mean, if we look at the Boxing Day tsunami, um, you know, the Haiti earthquakes, etc. Um, there are those extreme outlier events that, that do occur from time to time um, where life loss is, is, uh, is significant. Like we can't even fathom it, frankly. Um, but, so, but Laura, that, that, those events were happening, you know, a, a lot more in the past. What, you know, what the stats say is that the chances of dying from a climate event is incredibly diminished in 100 years. And perhaps because we're richer, better organised, and uh, you know, got the tech. Not um, everyone's richer, but <laughs> go on. No, but <laughs> I'm, not sure, those, I'm not sure what uh, the source of this is either. <laughs> uh, well, I, Jess, if you've got the reading notes, sorry, listeners, we're having a bit of a uh, blue about this, but the reading notes were provided um, that the chances of climate deaths is, uh, despite you know the outliers you talked about. Laura, they're incredibly diminished. But is this also, this is also putting aside the fact that there's uh, health-related effects of these disasters. So, yes, the number of deaths might be potentially reduced, but in terms of the health-related impacts, I would be interested to know what the data is around that. So things like, you know, um, smoke inhalation and the loss of homes and possessions, the millions of hectares of habitat being destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts about that, Laura? Uh, there certainly are uh, additional consequences, um, particularly in terms of life loss. That it's, It doesn't just stem from um, the event itself. And you, and you mentioned smoke inhalation, and that's a really key one. We know that um, there tend to be uh, increased um, fatalities uh, in the weeks and months following large-scale bushfire events. Um, if we look at um, other types of disasters and we think about um, September 11th, we know now that uh, there's actually been more fatalities um, uh, from exposure to, um, you know, I suppose the, the really fine particle debris uh, following Black Saturday than, than there were fatalities um, directly from that event. So, Laura, we mentioned it briefly earlier about Indigenous cultures in terms of land management and disaster prevention. Should we be better utilising their knowledge in order to provide better planning outcomes? Uh, in short, Jess, uh, absolutely. Uh, the answer is, is, is yes. The uh, outcomes of the Royal Commission in 2020 following the Black Summer Fires and some of the state-based uh, inquiries that were conducted very much focused on the role of uh, cultural fire and um, Indigenous uh, fire management, cultural burning practices uh, and their contribution um, uh, to this to this space, but particularly in terms of the stewardship of healthy country, and that's really what um, uh, cultural burning focuses on. Uh, so it's really um, a, a, a multi-objective approach around providing sufficient food sources uh, for animals, um, as well as um, you know recognition that the Australian bush is meant to burn. Um, 
Um, so fire regimes are an important part of that, you know, uh, and uh, cultural burning really um, takes its cues from what we're observing in the landscape. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, of course, can't speak to it um, as well as um, uh, our Indigenous counterparts in, in uh, traditional fire management, of course, can, but um, uh, it is a tool um, that we should absolutely be amplifying. Um, and uh, it, it ideally shouldn't have been um, this responsive approach that we've seen since Black Summer to really, um, I guess, uh, highlight the conversation. That conversation has always been there, but I think that, that um, it's certainly been amplified over the past few years. And I really hope that moving forward, um, uh, we see a much greater transition in how we're managing our landscapes more holistically um, around that focus of healthy country. Yeah, Laura, that it's, you know, it, the, the landscape, a lot of what gets burnt is in national parks and state parks. Um, and we've got a different, completely different landscape. Uh, and I, I understand what you're saying about the Indigenous cultural burning, but, you know, it's almost whole scale um, land management now. And each state has very sophisticated fire services and, and you know, backburning, relying on technology, ecologists. Um, there's already very good systems in place. You, you, you agree with that? I think there's a range of mitigation measures that uh, are in place and need to continue to be deployed. So um, you mentioned backburning. I think uh, prescribed burning is actually the correct term. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, or hazard reduction burning. So backburning is an activity that's undertaken when a fire is, is, um, is burning. Uh, so it's a control method, whereas hazard reduction or prescribed burning is about um, fuel load management. But Absolutely, absolutely, Laura. I got that one very wrong. Oh, the, the only reason I mention that is because that is one of those um, language is important and that is one of those common ones that people, I think, you know, when we're talking about hazards and, and how we're going to respond to them, um, you know, getting, using the correct terminology um, uh, is, is, is key to that. And that's, that really is one of the key ones that comes up all the time. Uh, and it, it is a bit perpetuated in the media as well. Um, but yeah, in answer to the question, that I think there's a belts and braces approach we need. We need to be, um, we need to be taking a very holistic approach to um, planning for bushfire resilience. Um, and it's, it's about land use planning. And it's about bringing all of our planning tools to the table. Um, it's, it's um, you know, and strategic planning and planning policy play a really large role in that space. But equally, um, it's about uh, our building provisions. It's about land management. It's about community engagement and community understanding and preparedness. Uh, there's so many different aspects. Um, we can't rely on just one measure. We have to be bringing it across the spectrum every year uh, moving forward. Good, good point. Now, Laura, there's a common misconception, and I hope we can clear this up, about one in a hundred year events. Yes. Um, and, and while some have labelled, you know, the recent floods in the East Coast as one in a year flood, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, they're only going to occur one in a hundred years. No. You know, there's not going to be another one for a hundred years. What, what we're actually looking at is the probability of a flood in a particular year. Can, can you, can you talk to that point? Yes. So uh, the one in 100 year uh, phrase or terminology, so that's an annual return interval uh, and that was historically used, but now we, um, in this space, we very much use the annual exceedance probability, as you just mentioned, it's about probability. So an AEP, uh, and so 1%, um, you know, 
is is meant to be the equivalent, I suppose, um, in terms of a, a one in 100 year. But it, it really is about that you have a 1% chance in any given year um, of a particular uh, um, um, magnitude event occurring. Um, it might be that you have one, two weeks apart um so that's the game of probability right um and so yeah there is a there is a misconception in this space and again that's why language is really important um and media outlets um to their to their credit i suppose you could say have tried to um uh address that more recently but it's still being perpetuated um but yeah that is that is certainly something uh, i think that affects our understanding of event probability um, that, yeah, we absolutely need to focus on community awareness around, um, around those messages. Okay, thanks, Laura. Now we're coming to the end of our interview now. I wanted to just quickly go back to um, something I mentioned in the introduction, which is your fantastic award that you won, um, I think it was about a month or so ago for um, around International Women's Day. So Outstanding Women in Planning Award. Um, I believe you were a, you were a joint winner. I was yes. wondering what you wanted to do with this platform. Is there a particular message that you... Um, are keen to get out to young women and young planners in the industry um, as a result of that award? Absolutely. I think um, one of the key things that I've learned in my career is um, it, it's great to have a plan. Um, and as planners, we're, we're generally pretty good at having plans, but um, I would... Uh, I think one of the things that that has really benefited me is that while I sort of had a general direction of where I wanted to go, I wouldn't say it was a plan, um, but um, I really have attempted to keep my option, not options open, but I would caution anyone from being so fixated on a plan <laughs> that you don't actually see opportunities arise in your career. Um, if you had asked me at the start of my career, if I would be practicing in natural hazards and particularly in, in the bushfire space, I, I wouldn't have believed that. Um, uh, so I think there's just, there's serendipitous things that will happen along your career journey um, and having your eyes open to that and, maybe sometimes taking a risk, but also backing yourself. And I think for women backing themselves, backing ourselves is a huge piece of that. Um, I think uh, sometimes we can be overly cautious and uh, I'm speaking very generally here, um, but um, you know, and confidence is a really challenging um, concept uh, and it's certainly something that I've grappled with in my career but um, when when we do the work we're the ones that are 100% across it and and who better to speak to that than us so um, yeah I guess that's probably the one thing that I'm really passionate about is 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 backing ourselves and being open to opportunities. Mm. Laura so you're optimistic. I mean, you, you deal in disaster management. Uh, it can be pretty grim at times, no doubt. But are you optimistic about the future? I am. I think we have tremendous opportunity um, to navigate our own journeys, um, to um, exercise our agency in this space. Um, and um, all of that, I suppose, starts with awareness and, and our own education. Um, and I think, you know, we have a journey ahead of us, but um, um, I think that there's tremendous, um, um, there's tremendous things that we can explore um, on this journey that will um, stand us in good stead, I think. And on to podcast extra, um, Laura, this is a segment where we ask our subject about something they've watched or seen or done that might be of interest to their listeners. Anything that you've got to contribute to podcast or Culture Corner? Uh, probably two things. Um, 
last year a documentary was released following the Black Summer events. It's called A Fire Inside. Uh, so there's a documentary. There's also a book. Um, and I would strongly recommend that to anyone. So uh, the first part of the documentary really focuses on um, I guess the experience of the event through the through the eyes of the fire services in New South Wales. Um, and the, the second part of that is um, more the recovery piece and um, you know some of the um, emotional um, and community driven um, uh, aspects of, of dealing with a post-trauma situation. So there's a lot of things to take away from that, but I think it's a really important insight for others um, who, who, who haven't been through those events to take pause. Um, so I think that's a really good, um, I think that's a great documentary. The other one that um, uh, will have aired by the time this podcast is released is uh, A People's Public of Malakuta, uh, which I think it starts on the ABC this week. Um, and I'm really excited to watch that. Um, it is focused on obviously um, the community of Malakuta that experienced devastating that, bushfires. That, that for, our, for, for our listeners, Laura, that's on the western, uh, sorry, the eastern coast, far eastern coast of Victoria. Yes. And can you just set the scene about what happened at Malakuta? Uh, so, um, what happened in Malakuta was, um, yeah, the the fire event uh, that um, that prevailed occurred very quickly. Um, it's a seaside uh, community, as you mentioned, Peter. A lot of tourists were in town. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was actually the year before um, Black Summer. Or was it? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a few years ago, and they were isolated, and the bush. I mean, the hinterland there is exclusively, I think it's national park. Uh, you know, there's very little population around there. It's an isolated coastal town, and the hinterland just went up. That's right. Um, and yeah, so evacuation was a a a, a an issue that that occurred. Um, there's uh images of, of people, you know, that, that had to take to the water or in boats, um, the quite famous images now. Um, and so this documentary um, or this series that's going to air on the ABC is, is really looking at um, the community taking back some agency and some power over its, its destiny. Um, and so from a resilience perspective, I think that's going to be a very fascinating watch. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. Uh, I've been in Malakuta since, and the town actually escaped the fire, but the, it did. the hinterland got absolutely smashed. And um, I don't know how they could ever stop that fire. Jess, your podcast extra, Culture Corner? Um, my podcast extra is The Rescue, which is a National Geographic uh, documentary on Disney+. Plus. Um, which is about the, the the Thai cave disaster where the 12 boys were trapped in the cave. Um, we've all probably watched various things about that over the years, but seeing it in this, um, in this setting, in this documentary is incredible. What they managed to achieve was absolutely mind-blowing. I didn't realise, um, I guess, probably a lot of the detail of that particular disaster, but seeing it in that setting is... Ugh brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it so highly highly recommend um it's, it's not an easy watch but really really interesting what about you Pete? well jess i i, I volunteered recently at the queenscliff music festival now I, i've done that in the past worked the trains but this year they had a mini because the festival hasn't happened for the last two years because of government lockdowns and um so this was by the pier and this time jess i was volunteering behind the bar so I had to work the Saturday night shift and I wish I had have done that when I was about 20. I think I would have been a much more responsible drinker, um, but it was a lot of fun. The only trouble is we had to wear stupid masks. No one else did, but, you know, serving behind the bar, we had to wear those stupid masks. And then on Sunday, and it was just great. We had fantastic weather. Uh, it was just great to have the music, people enjoying themselves, you know, mingling, dancing, 
celebrating. But I, I just say to our listeners, if you can try and volunteer some way in your local community, it's you know very rewarding. Laura, you've been a terrific guest. Sorry for the tough questioning. I'm sure you you know you just bounced off you, but you've in in enlightened us about lots of lots of things and keep up the good work and thanks for joining the little podcast thanks pete thanks jess um it's been a fabulous conversation i hope um there's some insights there for 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 some listeners but um yeah thank you for having me thank you for joining us really appreciate your time thanks for listening if you would like to hear more of our podcast hit the follow button on spotify or the like button on SoundCloud, or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn, or website for behind-the-scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout-out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.